Hi, and welcome to Lady Justice, Women of the Court. Every job has its downsides and share of stress, but some jobs are naturally more stressful than others. Whether it involves tight deadlines, demanding schedules, life or death decisions, or having a career that is adversarial by nature, the legal profession consistently ranks toward the top when it comes to chronic stress, and for years, lawyers have struggled with issues like depression, anxiety, and substance abuse at a rate higher than the general population. The women discuss how historically there's been a hands-off approach by the profession to addressing these issues but that this is changing in some big ways. We'll also hear a discussion with a national expert on lawyer well-being who is leading a movement toward recognizing the many benefits of assisting lawyers and law students with mental health and substance abuse issues and the high cost of turning a blind eye. We're really putting a lot of focus into law schools and the law students and the young lawyers because the data that we have in the studies show that is where the most suffering is. That is where we have the highest rates of alcohol use issues, um, depression, and anxiety. And of course, this is the future of our profession. Also on the program, the justices share thoughts on promoting civility and point to sources on the topic that have inspired them. If you must counsel or reprimand anyone, ponder first if this should be in public or in private, now or at some other time, and in what terms to do it. In reprimanding, show no irritation, only sweetness and mildness. It's absolutely been shown in social science data that if people feel like they were listened to and they were able to actually ask the questions that they had about what was going on, they're very willing to accept an outcome that wasn't the one they showed up hoping for. He said, you sent my son to prison. I could see the pain that he was still feeling about his son. And I just looked at him and I said, did your son feel he was treated fairly? That's coming up on Lady Justice, Women of the Court. Welcome to Episode 8 of the Lady Justice Podcast. I'm Justice Beth Walker of the Supreme Court of Appeals of West Virginia, and I'm the host for this episode. I can't believe we're at Episode 8 already. Today, we're going to talk about an aspect of our jobs that we've not really discussed yet on the podcast. Although it looks a little different in every state, each state's Supreme Court is responsible for supervising the legal profession overall. That includes things like deciding who can be licensed to practice law in the state and setting rules of professional conduct for lawyers and judges and seeing that those rules are enforced. All states also have disciplinary panels or boards who consider complaints against lawyers and judges and sometimes impose sanctions if there's been a violation of the ethical rules. This is an important responsibility because we want the public to have confidence not only in the integrity of our courts, but also in the ethics of the lawyers who are licensed to practice law in our states. As justices, we need to know what's going on in the legal profession from the law schools to every kind of lawyer out there practicing. And all four of us care a lot about making sure that folks who need help in the legal system have access to competent lawyers to help them. Just a few years ago, some leaders in our professions uh, nationally started to become concerned about the health and well-being of lawyers overall. We all know that practicing law or being a judge or being a law student, for that matter, can be difficult. But in 2016, two important studies were published that showed that law students and lawyers experienced chronic stress and higher rates of depression, 
substance abuse, especially alcohol abuse, suicidal thoughts, and other mental health challenges when compared to the general population or to other professions. These studies were important and a little sobering, no pun intended, because they confirmed what many folks in our profession had been observing for a long time. As a result of those studies in 2016, the National Task Force on Lawyer Wellbeing was formed. In 2017, the task force issued a report called the Path to Lawyer Wellbeing, Practical Recommendations for Positive Change. This comprehensive report included recommendations for judges, regulators, legal employers, bar associations, and others in the legal profession to try to change the culture of the work we do, of our legal profession. Since then, over 30 states have launched task forces, special committees, or other initiatives to study that report and implement its recommendations with the goal of improving the well being of the legal profession. We'll put links to the 2016 studies and to the National Task Report in our show notes. There's a lot of really great information there and too much detail uh, for us to go into today. But what we will do today, uh, the main idea of what is now called the lawyer well-being movement is that a healthy lawyer or a healthy judge or a healthy law student is one who is competent and able to meet her ethical and professional responsibilities to her clients. And for those who might be struggling, our profession needs to be more open to and knowledgeable about the need for lawyers to seek help with mental or physical challenges before they come, become a crisis. Every state has a group called Lawyers Helping Lawyers, or the Judges and Lawyers Assistance Program, or sometimes just called the Lawyers Assistance Programs, or, or LAPS. And these groups provide confidential support to lawyers and judges and law students who may be struggling with substance abuse or mental health issues or other concerns that may be interfering with their ability to do their job practicing law or being a student or being a judge. So we'll say it again at the end, but I'll say it now. If you are a lawyer or a judge or if you know and love a lawyer and a judge who needs help, um, know that these lawyer assistance programs, lawyer helping lawyers programs are out there and you just need to reach out to them in your state. This is an issue of lawyer well-being that came to the forefront in my first year as a justice and one that I care deeply about. Over the years, like all of us, probably on this podcast, I've watched colleagues, friends, and acquaintances suffer and wait too long because they're fearful that they'd be dismissed as weak or not otherwise up to the challenge of practicing law. Our profession sometimes wants you to act like you're strong all the time and that you don't have any flaws. But this stigma is what we're trying to eliminate. On the other hand, I've seen and been inspired by courageous lawyers and judges who stand up and publicly acknowledge their vulnerabilities and how they persevere and thrive with proper treatment and self-care. So my, with all that introduction, my simple goal today is to raise awareness about these issues. I'm very grateful to my friends that we could take an episode to talk about the importance of well-being, uh, of the well-being of the legal profession. And it's very timely because well-being week in law is coming up at the beginning of May, and I'll talk more about that later. But to kick things off, let's talk about some of the things that are happening in our states to support lawyer and judge well-being. And we'll start with the Chief Justice, Bridget. Hello. 
Good morning, and uh, thank you for all of the work you've done on this important topic for our podcast today, but more generally, you're a, you're a leader in your state and you're a leader in our country on really bringing attention to um, lawyer and judge well-being, and it's going to make a difference. It's going to make a difference um, not just for the lawyers and judges who can get help, but for the clients they serve, their families, their communities, and I'm grateful to you, my friend, for all the work you've done on it. Um, Michigan, like many other states, has a robust Lawyers and Judges Assistance Program. It's run through the state bar. And um, I think like many other states, the goal is to support legal professionals to optimize their general well-being. And I would say that what's different in how this program looks now than maybe even four or five years ago is there's a real emphasis on proactive um, well-being, not just reactive, right? It used to be that lawyers and judges could get in trouble um, as a result of behavioral health um, concerns and to react to, to folks in trouble, the, these programs would offer monitoring and assistance. But, but the emphasis now really is on proactive um, seeking of help. So they offer consultations, all confidential, by the way, assessments, short-term counseling, uh, monitoring, referrals to um, more uh, substantial providers when that's needed, and then other just tools for practicing wellness that all of us can benefit from. And, and they do trainings as well. It, it's, and the, the services are offered to law students, to people applying to the bar in our state, to attorneys, to judges, to their family members, to their colleagues, and basically to anyone concerned about lawyers and judges who might be struggling. So it, it's, it's, it's really a comprehensive, proactive attempt to make sure um, lawyers and judges have a way to get the support they need if they are struggling with behavioral health issues. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful program. If you're in Michigan, you should follow them on Twitter. It's at MISTATEBAR underscore L-I-A-P. So you can keep up with what they're offering, especially during the pandemic, um, there's been a real need for, for their services. I think that probably some of you, some of my colleagues will also have uh, something to report on this, but the Supreme Court also took the step um, last year of eliminating the mental health history questions from the state bar application. It used to be that applicants to our state bar had to disclose their mental health histories. Uh, and that seemed to us to be um, to disincentivize law students who are struggling with behavioral health concerns from getting help. And that seemed counterproductive to us. So we eliminated those questions. We want to do everything we can, again, proactively to support people getting help when they need it. Well, that's great. And uh, thank you for your very nice comments, Bridget. Rhonda, how about Arkansas? Yeah, so um, Arkansas, in response to the um, national report, we formed a task force on well-being and really studied and sort of made our own recommendations um, tailored to Arkansas. And I think it's probably true, like everywhere else, that our the number one issue was funding for what we call our JLAT program, Judges and Lawyer Assistant Program. It's run through the Supreme Court. We have an office. And um, so really our main recommendation was funding, um, also really focusing on making sure that really every major continuing ed program for judges and for lawyers had a well-being component to it. And then also that every time that lawyers get together, that 
events are not focused around alcohol. That's something that we don't talk a lot about, but if you notice that from, you know, that my time as a law student all the way, you know, through my career now as a judge, that that's true, right? Um, that a lot of times the events were alcohol focused. And um, so instead making sure that we're deliberate, whether there are, you know, yoga sessions or, you know, a run or a golf outing or, you know, a book club or something sign, you know, something else to get together, or that if you are going to have, you know, alcohol at an event, you have mocktails, you know, that um, there is no sort of stigma attached um, to those that um, choose not to, you know, partake in alcohol. And also not waiting till someone has a problem. It used to be no one used JLAP until they were reported. And instead encouraging lawyers and judges to, um, and their families that if they were being sensitive and aware of sort of the signs of them reaching out and getting help on their own, not waiting until someone, you know, reported that they thought a lawyer was struggling and perhaps getting into issues with clients. So I think we're making strides in really recognizing that a successful lawyer or a judge is a well-rounded one um, and then knows how to handle stress um, without turning to substances. Thank you. And how about in Texas? Hello, Eva. Hello, everyone. Well, I um, appreciate hearing about what's going on in my, my friends' respective states. And I think what it reflects is a culture shift in the way the legal profession addresses well-being or mental health issues or substance abuse. And um, it also bodes well for ending the stigma. I think for decades, we have felt a certain stigma around coming forward and seeking help. So in Texas, uh, we have the Texas Lawyers Assistance Program, and it can be found on tlephelps.org. The program is um, designed to help law students. Law students don't speak up about um, the mental health issues they're experiencing because state bar applications, you know, delve into that history. So TLAP is there for them. And um, young lawyers, 32% of uh, lawyers 30 years old or younger have a drinking problem. And that's... uh, a startling statistic, but it's something that TLAP has recognized and is helping to address. Aging lawyers, uh, there are a lot of State Bar of Texas programs around the issue of aging lawyers. For a long time, uh, lawyers wouldn't speak up when they were experiencing cognitive decline and needing that assistance. And then finally, TLAP is there for judges, and it helps judges uh, with substance abuse or mental health. And so I think that the resources go beyond this. The American Bar Association also has some resources available through its website. There are, um, I think I've talked about this before, but I'm chairing the Appellate Judges Education Institute Summit this year in Austin in November of 2021. And we have an entire topic related to uh, well-being and mindfulness and getting lawyers to come forward and, and treat themselves and take care of themselves. In the end, it's better for our justice system. Thank you. That's great. Um, let me talk about a couple things in West Virginia. We formed a task force on lawyer well-being, and 
have been working a lot on education and awareness. One nice thing that happened during the pandemic, we have, of course, West Virginia is a pretty small state. We had two a North and a South, uh, weekly lawyers in recovery groups that were meeting regularly, one um, in the southern part of the state and one in Morgantown up in the northern part of the state where our law school is. When the pandemic hit, those groups, as most recovery groups did, went virtual, went to Zoom, um, along with you know AA and so many other smart recovery and, and other recovery groups. But the wonderful thing about it is that that enabled lawyers in recovery in rural areas to participate and law students, uh, because a lot, a lot of the law students were home away from Morgantown. Um, and that in those groups, I've talked to people in, in the groups who participate and our folks from the JLAP who um, facilitate the group. And it's kind of mixed on whether they want to go back to being live because they miss the in-person connection, but they love how it's been able to uh, be more inclusive of people who might have a bit of a drive or a busy schedule, and they can just pull up their computer and participate in a great supportive meeting. Um, so that's been a, you know, another one of those pandemic silver linings, I guess. And going and emphasizing something that Bridget talked about, I'll just say it again. These Questions on character and fitness, um, they call them generally character and fitness. It's like a bar admissions term, but um, it is these questions about mental health. And West Virginia also eliminated this kind of broad diagnosis question. Have you ever been, or have you in the last few years been diagnosed with, and then list off behavioral health issues? And we removed it as well. Now, of course, um, we're, you know, there are questions appropriate under the Americans with Disabilities Act that say, is there anything currently going on that's going to, you know, limit your ability to practice law? And those are, and those are fine. And that's not what we're worried about. But these diagnosis questions, as Bridget mentioned, and I'm just going to emphasize because it's super important. We don't want law students to just suffer in silence because they're afraid they're going to have to report it when they apply for a bar. And so, that's been a, a small thing. It may seem small, but it's actually a really big thing because I think some of the, uh, the culture change we're talking about starts with our law students. So another important well-being topic uh, that I want to talk about is civility. One of the recommendations in the national report is for leaders to foster collegiality and respectful engagement throughout the profession. And that sounds like a, a, a high aspiration. But the report is more practical about it and talks about a toxic culture contributing to poor health and that chronic incivility is corrosive. And I think we can all agree on that. But the hard thing is what can we or should we do to try to encourage civility, recognizing of course that our profession operates every day in an adversarial system. I mean, the nature of our courts is that it's somebody against somebody, state versus somebody. Um, so how can we encourage civility in that context? Eva, can you begin? This is a topic that I've spoken on a lot. Um, it's an important topic. I'm going to begin with a, a quote from uh, Justice, uh, former U.S. Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. And she said, more civility and greater professionalism can only enhance the pleasure lawyers find in practice increase the effectiveness of our system of justice and improve the public's perception of lawyers. I couldn't agree more with uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor who is known uh, for championing civility in the profession. And I think as judges, we have 
a unique opportunity and in fact a responsibility to be exemplars of the deliberative process um, to in engage in rational discourse with counsel appearing before us and to act as dignified stewards of justice. Walk the walk, as they say. I think it's important to remember that CELUS advocacy neither requires nor justifies incivility. Um, and as judges, we have a unique opportunity to model the behavior that we want to see, whether it's an oral argument, uh, for trial court judges in the courtroom. And that means just leading by example, but I wanna share a tidbit from something that I found. So we know that the importance of conducting ourselves um, with civility is set out in many states, either in the lawyer's creed or in, of course, in the rules of professional conduct um, as a bare minimum for how we should conduct ourselves. But more than 400 years ago, uh, the French Jesuits articulated a set of principles for civility and decorum that were later scribed and popularized by George Washington as 110 rules of civility and decent behavior. Now they're humorously antiquated in some respects, but many still strike a chord and they're simple concepts, but they're grounded in the notion that mutual respect is the key to strengthening our societal fabric. And so um, one of the ones that pertains to judges, I think, uh, that you'll find in, in these 110 rules of civility is those of high rank should treat others with affability and courtesy and without arrogance. And if you think about that concept articulated so many, many years ago, it's especially applicable for the notion that we model that behavior. Uh, another one that I thought, and it's the one I'll, I'll uh, close my, my segment with, is uh, for um, judges, when lawyers engage in behavior that we find offensive. Um, and I saw this more on the trial court bench when I was on the trial court bench and lawyers would begin to have an argument with themselves and forget where they were, but it says, if you must counsel or reprimand anyone, ponder first if this should be in public or in private, now or at some other time, and in what terms to do it. In reprimanding, show no irritation, only sweetness and mildness. Well, we can translate the sweetness and the mildness to, uh, again, conducting ourselves with uh, good, honest, civil behavior that encourages everyone in front of us to do the same and that um, gives the public a sense that the justice system is in good hands. It's amazing how those uh, lessons are timeless. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Bridget, how about you? Civility. Yeah, um, I, that was actually really fun to hear about, Eva. I appreciate I appreciate that. I, um, I, I agree with everything Eva said, and I, I, I want to especially emphasize that I think as judges, we can model um, civility, and it is impossible to overstate how far that goes um, when people are in our courtrooms, but also when we're engaging with the public more generally. People want to know who their judges are. They want their judges engaged with their local communities, and judges can and should be engaged with their communities. 
there's one concrete thing that, that we did in Michigan um, just last year, a, a group of lawyers concerned about civility um, in the practice of law spent a number of months focusing on what what additional steps we could take as a profession, lawyers and judges together, to, to make sure that um, civility is the theme that runs through our profession. And they recommended to the Supreme Court, and we adopted a set of civility principles. We call them the professionalism principles, principles of professionalism. There are 12 different principles. And I'm not going to read them all, but just to, to give you uh, an example, the first one is we show civility in our interactions with people involved in the justice system by treating them with courtesy and respect. The principles are, are not at all designed to add on to the codes of conduct that already govern lawyers and judges. They're not ways to trip up lawyers and get them in trouble or ways to trip up judges and get them to trouble. They're more an aspirational um, exclamation of of what we want to be and a reminder to each other and to ourselves of what we want to be. I I find that it's it's so important for judges in particular with self-represented litigants to model treating people with courtesy and respect. There's a bunch of social science data that shows that Litigants care a lot more about how they are treated in the process of um, being in court or um, trying to resolve a legal dispute than the specific outcome. That might seem hard to believe, but it's absolutely been shown in social science data that if people feel like they were listened to and they were able to actually ask the questions that they had about what was going on, and judges or court staff, sometimes it's court staff, were able to explain to them what was happening, they're very willing to accept an outcome that wasn't the one they showed up hoping for. So civility is really important, not just, not just for the inherent value of it, but it's important for the rule of law. It really does increase people's acceptance of court's decisions. So our professionalism principles, I think, are a really nice way of reminding ourselves and each other of what matters in our interactions. Yeah, so um, I will say that um, I want to touch on a little bit the civility in um, appellate courts because it's vitally important when we make collaborative decisions that we have civility. And if there's an absence of respect or civility um, among the appellate judges, it can be incredibly disruptive to the decision-making process. And um, our court, my first two years on the court, we transitioned through three chief justices because we had a, um, our first chief justice became ill. And so we had him leave an appointee and then an elected. So what we did is that we brought out the National Judicial College and we did a retreat on collaborative decision-making and sort of setting the standard moving forward Um, And if you consider how the appellate court reaches decisions, every one of us has to feel comfortable to be able to share and express our thoughts on that case, free from any kind of personal criticism, right? And we have to be able to respectfully disagree in a way that isn't feeling like someone's attacking you, you know? (laughs) How do you express that and disagree with a, a viewpoint without making the attack personal? Um, And one of the things that the NJC suggested was that we do a civility pledge among the appellate judges. 
So we actually crafted our own civility rules and how we were going to interact in discussing our cases and dealing with each other. And so um, sort of a little bit, maybe what Bridget was talking about, but we actually crafted our rules about our expectations of civility. And it wasn't that we were uncivil before, but just sort of setting this is how we're going to be as a court because there were a lot of you know, new justices. And um, then one of our justices, Justice Wynn, actually printed it and framed a copy of with everybody's signature for all of us. And it really sort of set the tone, you know, for us going forward. Uh, this is, you know, what the court's going to be and how we're going to move forward and, and sort of stand. And I think that that becomes important too, just in how we, you know, write opinions and then you write a dissent, right? That you're civil when you dissent. So it wasn't just the discussions in the conference room that you're civil with each other that you sort of respectfully dissent, right? <laughs> that you do it in a manner that, it, you know, you can criti critically, you know, object to the analysis of a majority without attacking the person personally or um, their intellect. So I think that when litigants and attorneys see, you know, our written opinions and the dissent, we're modeling just what, you know, you guys have said that we've modeled that ability to engage intellectual conversation and a debate in a civil manner in our writings. Um, and so I think that that's highly important and I'm so glad Beth that you brought that up. Well, thank you. And all three of you just came up with some really inspirational observations and things to go check out. Um, I think, you know, to put a point on it, you know, being civil is a conscious choice. It's not the easy way to do it. I think the, the easy way to do things is to just kind of lash out or not be conscious of the other person or not be accepting of the fact that there are always two or three or four points of view. And um, it takes a little work, but it is so worth it, whether you're talking about a trial court or an appellate court or just the interactions we have with each other. Um, to take just a, a moment to be aware of the impact of your conduct on another person uh, and how sometimes you have to step back and sort of think about what you're doing, not just from an intellectual, am I making the right argument, am I making uh, the, the, the smart thing, am I doing it in a manner that the other person can hear it? And that's, I think, how civility is something that we need to be thinking about. Now, this is a great transition, uh, Ron, of talking about what you did at your court, what, what was done at your court, is let's talk specifically about judging. And one more report uh, on the topic of well-being just in the past few months. Another survey relating to well-being in, in our profession has been published. And this one is specifically about judges, and most of the judges surveyed were state court judges. And the study is called Stress and Resiliency in the U.S. Judiciary. The study talks about sources of stress for judges, the effects of that stress, and how judges manage it. Obviously, different kinds of judges have different kinds of stress. Trial judges and appellate judges, as we talked about on this podcast, uh, have very different jobs. Some of us on the podcast have done both, and it's a contrast. But the top four sources of stress for the judges in the survey were number one. I'll just give you the top four, uh, the importance or the impact of decisions. Number two, a heavy docket of cases. Number three, unprepared attorneys. 
And number four, self-represented litigants. Um, so we have a lot of stressors, uh, according to the survey, to be uh, conscious of. And with all that in mind, one of the most common questions I get when I talk to young students is how I can be fair to people when I might not like them or might not agree with them. Obviously, that involves managing emotions and demeanor, sometimes in stressful situations. As a practical matter, all four of us have had to learn the skill of conducting ourselves in a courtroom, whether it's a trial courtroom or an appellate courtroom, in a very neutral way. And some people might simplify that and call it a poker face. And uh, we managed to do that, whether we're live or on Zoom, for hours at a time. So let's, I'm going to ask each of you to talk a little bit about how you maintain the neutrality that's required in our jobs, even when you might feel strongly about something or when the stress is high. Rhonda, can you kick us off on this? Boy, that's a hard question. So um, I think that it's hard to explain until you've really sat in the chair we've sat in, um, how hard it is to make the decisions that we make. We just have to always keep in mind our role in the justice system. You know, when we are reversing a criminal conviction and there are times when you may feel, you know, it's clear perhaps the person was guilty, but if there is an error in the process, if their constitutional rights were violated, then we absolutely reverse because they are entitled to a fair and constitutional trial. But your heart bleeds a little bit when that happens, right? <laughs> um, because you know the impact of, a of the new trial. And it's hard. And I will say that you always, um, you know, you lead with the law and you get to the result. And if you're, I guess I always feel that if, if I'm uncomfortable with the result, I probably feel safer that it's the right result, right? <laughs> Um, if I'm too comfortable with the result, then that's one of the ones I'm checking, um, that I'm making sure I wasn't result driven. Um, it's um, Justice Scalia um, has that famous quote about, and I'll probably get it wrong, about um, a judge who likes all of his um, results is a bad judge. <laughs> um, because you have to be willing to be able to be uncomfortable with some of your decisions because nobody would like all the law and you have to be able to lead with it. But I do think that it's um, really stressful and, um, and we have to figure out ways to cope with it. What Bridget said earlier um, struck a chord with me. Um, you guys know that I have all this construction going on at my house and um, I had a worker show up and I hadn't seen this man, gentleman in probably 12 years. And he said, um, he said, you were Judge Wood, right? <laughs> and I said, yes. And he said, you sent my son to prison and I hadn't recognized him. Um, and it was a little awkward. He's, you know, we're standing in my home <laughs> and I sort of looked at him, but I could see the pain that he was still feeling about his son. Um, and so, you know, I'm feeling his pain just from a human being, you know, standpoint. And I just looked at him and I said, did your son feel he was treated fairly? Um, and he said, yes, he really did. Um, and I said, you know, that's all I can hope for. And, you know, I hope he comes out a better person, but that's all we can do. Right. And so is that hope that they were, they felt they were heard, they had a fair shot and that we were neutral. But, um, I think if anyone thinks that judges don't feel and emote and feel 
you know, whether we think the person made just horrible decisions, it's not light on us when we uphold a sentence or we sentence someone. Um, and that, you know, when you said the number one on that survey is the seriousness of the decision, we feel that. And that's why we have to have things that we do in our lives to decrease stress. And that if a judge doesn't have those things, it will just build. Um, and it can be, I think, catastrophic on judges' well-being. So I'm glad that you've brought this up. So I don't know, uh, Beth, what your thoughts are. <laughs> well, obviously, this is a, a question with a, a desired ending because because um, I do believe that we have a responsibility to take care of ourselves uh, in order to be able to do our jobs. Um, and that's something I learned um, very early on uh, as I was just getting the hang of being a judge. We had a bit of a culture problem uh, at our court and a situation that resulted in some pretty difficult times. And um, I had to learn early that you know, folks in um, elected positions, whether it's our position or the legislature or the executive, you, they might seem like they're against you and they might be against you. Um, but sometimes you have to look behind what they're doing. And, and, and it's the same thing we do for the people who appear in our courts and not take everything so personally. Um, and it's, it's much more nuanced than just saying you have a tough skin. I mean, we've all been lawyers and judges for a long time. And so, you know, we have that, that skill, um, but being able to do your job and understand that, that the people who disagree with you aren't necessarily against you. They're just for whatever it is they're for. And it's been, it was really, it, it sounds simple, but it was, um, it really changed the way that I was able to do this job. Not just knowing that there are lots of different points of view, um, but just not taking everything quite so personally. Uh, what I take personally is doing a good job. I take the rule of law personally. I take, you know, the importance of our courts personally, but um, you can't take yourself too seriously sometimes. Uh, and that is an occupational hazard in, in a world where uh, every, every time you walk into a room, people stand up. Um, so that's my uh, thoughts about this. How about you, Eva? I think we have to remember we're in this together. So I'm going to go back to 2008 uh, when I was on the intermediate appellate bench and um, we had just had Hurricane Ike. That summer, uh, my brother died at 53 of a brain aneurysm. So that was quick. And then 60 days later, my mother died. And so I'm beginning the fall term with um, losing my brother my mother, and lawyers don't necessarily know this. And so as a judge, I, I had to walk into that courtroom and I was going through a lot um, in my personal life. So, and I think judges have to remember that when a lawyer walks into your courtroom, we don't know what they're going through. And um, so as judges, I think we need to be very self-aware about the impact that the stress is having it on us, um, be very aware and very intentional about how we're handling it and be very aware of how that stress is impacting our colleagues, our cases. I can't think of anyone um, that needs to have more mental clarity than, than the judge. You're dealing with 
cases that involve, as Rhonda mentioned, often very difficult life-changing decisions. And so that mental clarity is so important. So situational awareness and seeking help uh, when help is needed. And also sometimes that involves just going to a trusted colleague or friend and talking about it. You know, I think we also realize as judges, particularly those of us that are elected, we really can't talk about a lot, right? And so there's a tendency not to discuss these difficult situations that we're facing, but find one trusted colleague. If you're a lawyer, um, you know, seek help. And if you're not comfortable, begin with a friend. So I, I um, thanks for that. Um, I think this is such a great question and a great conversation to have. Um, and I think you all covered most of the important bases. So there's probably not a, a lot left for me to, to say, but I want to be clear that I agree with um, everything I've heard. And Rhonda, the story about your interaction with the young man's father is really, um, I think, a beautiful story. And I that you um, had the ability to just ask him that question and you cared about the answer. Because I think at the end of the day, that is, this is sort of related to my, my answer to the last question. Um, when people are treated with courtesy and respect and they're treated fairly, it matters more than the specific outcome. And it is the case that a judge who likes every decision she's ever made is probably at the point in her career where it's time to move on and do something else. And I hope, uh, I hope that's if, if that ever happens to me where I find myself liking every single decision I'm making that I, I look for my next uh, career move. Um, that'll be, the, that'll be the, time, the time to do that. I do wanna say that it's important that we take every opportunity to make sure we remind the public, educate the public in some cases about this piece of our jobs that we don't get to show up like in the political branches of government and advance a policy that we like. In our decision-making function, we are tied to the law as other branches of government gave it to us um, or the people in the form of the constitution. And so um, we have this really different job from the other branches, which is why we're, a lot of things about how we work is different from those branches, but the public doesn't always remember that. And it's important for us, I, I hope any chance we get to engage others in, in a discussion of, and a reminder about that, that piece of our jobs. And then the last thing I want to say is that I recognize that trial judges have it far worse than, than we do. Um, so I was never on a trial bench, but the judges who are every day see people in their local communities. You know, like, like, like Rhonda, they, they see the parents of people they've had to send to prison in the grocery store, right? There are no cases uh, as stressful, frankly, as family law cases. Family court judges have some of the most stressful jobs um, there are. So hats off, uh, I say, to the, to the many um, trial judges who, who manage this with humility and um, with treating everybody with courtesy and respect. Next up, Justice Beth Walker interviews one of the authors of the 2017 report on lawyer well-being, which highlighted troubling statistics about substance abuse and mental health issues in the legal community. The report aimed to make practical recommendations that could lead to meaningful change. 
At the time the report was written, a survey of nearly 13,000 practicing lawyers had just found that between 21 and 36 percent qualified as problem drinkers, and that approximately 28 percent were struggling with depression. And a survey of over 3,300 law students in 15 law schools found that 17 percent experienced some level of depression, 14 percent experienced severe anxiety, and 6% reported serious suicidal thoughts in the past year. With regard to alcohol use, 43% of students reported binge drinking at least once in the prior two weeks. Well, as we continue our conversation about well-being in the legal profession, we are so excited to be joined by a special guest for this episode. Uh, We have with us today Bree Buchanan, who is a senior advisor for Krill Strategies, providing consultation on issues relating to lawyer well-being and impairment for major legal employers. Bree is the founding co-chair of the National Task Force on Lawyer Well-Being and is a co-author of the groundbreaking 2017 report, The Path to Well-Being, Practical Recommendations for Positive Change. Just recently in December 2020, she was appointed board president of the newly formed Institute for Wellbeing and Law, which I'm sure she'll tell us about. Bree is co-host of the podcast, The Path to Wellbeing and Law, and has shared her own story of recovery as a featured guest on podcasts, as well as articles published in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. UK. So Bree, welcome to our podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for having me, Justice Walker. I'm delighted to be here. Well, we are just thrilled that to have a person of your stature uh, on this topic So let me uh, ask you a couple of questions. One of the primary goals of the 2017 National Task Force Report, the groundbreaking 2017 National (laughs) Task Force Report. That's right, don't forget that. (laughs) Is to uh, change the culture of our profession. Yeah. Uh, The recommendations made are ambitious. Mm -hmm. And so as we sit here in 2021, let me ask you how it's going and is the reaction by the various stakeholders that are challenged in the report what you expected? Well, in a short answer, in some ways, no. Um, When we were writing this, when we sat down to start working on this in 2016, for us to sit down in a room together and say that we, there were about 10 of us, that we were gonna bring about culture change in the legal profession. We actually laughed at ourselves, but we decided that's what we were going to do. And our greatest fear when we first started is that this would report would live on a shelf and nobody would, would look at it. So we worked really hard to make it readable, accessible. Um, and the moment it was launched, it met to huge success. We had resolutions passed by the Conference of Chief Justices and by the ABA. The legal media adopted it. And we were off to the races. And I would say the one, it's not really a mistake, but thing that I feel like I've been sort of off kilter with is consistently underestimating how successful this movement will be. And it just really says to me when something like that happens, when you start something and doors just keep opening as you go forward, it says to me it was the right thing, the right message, the right people at the right time. So there's been a tremendous reception to this Um, and to, and I am incredibly humbled 
by the success of things like uh, to date, just since that report was published in 2017, we have 32 state task forces or commissions, They're, they have different titles, but multi-stakeholder groups around the country that are looking at this and every one of those has been convened at the behest of this, this report that we wrote. And I, I continue to be just amazed and humbled by that. We have so many big projects going on at major law firms. Um, it's just been an amazing journey. Well, and for those of you um, who have been living on planet Mars, um, at least the lawyers and judges out there who might be listening um, and have not seen the National Task Force Report, we, we will have it linked in our podcast. And it's available, of course, on the website of the Institute for Wellbeing and Law, which we'll also link and make sure that uh, you can take a look at it because there are a lot of very practical recommendations. You know, we, we went from quantifying really for the first time, the challenges that lawyers and law students, and now we know judges have in terms of stress and behavioral health and substance abuse to finding things to do about it all in the course of a really relatively short period of time. So hats off to you and to uh, your colleagues on the National Task Force for doing that. And I'm also a fan of your podcast, you uh, launched, so we're, this is like cross-pollination of podcasts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you and Chris Newbold um, are co-hosts of the Path to Wellbeing in Law, which for folks who are interested in the nuts and bolts and what's being done in the States and what's sort of the cutting edge, uh, what, are the, what are the developments in this area? I, I commend that podcast to you, Bree. You guys are doing a great job with that. Uh, we know how hard it is to stay on a good podcast schedule. So That's hats right. off. <laughs> uh, one interesting issue that you and Chris have discussed on the podcast is, uh, and again, it's all under the umbrella of cultural change, is how we train lawyers mm. and, how, and whether law schools are setting realis- realistic expectations about what practicing law is like, not training the substantive law, but letting students know you know, who aspiring lawyers know um, what they need to expect and how difficult it might be or challenging it might be. So with all that in mind, how are law schools in particular reacting to the recommendations in the report? Yeah, it's a cross, it's a, it's a spectrum, uh, of course. Um, and we really, um, both the National Task Force in our report, as well as the Institute that we're, we're forming now as a continuation of the task force's report, we're really putting a lot of focus into law schools and the law students and the young lawyers because the data that we have in the studies show that is where the most suffering is. That is where we have the highest rates of um, alcohol use issues, um, depression and anxiety. And of course, this is the future of our profession. So we're really committed to digging in and looking at what's going on. And so we get a variety of reports from law schools across the country. Some of them are just really jumped on the bandwagon. Typically it's, you know, the Dean of Student Affairs or Academic Affairs has become very involved in this. Um, There's a great law review article that was published in the Journal of Legal Education by Professor Confino out of Fordham. Um, It's the, where are we on the path to lawyer well-being and talking about what's happening 
and she did a survey of what's happening in the law schools. And she got half of actually the law schools in the country to respond. And so you, it has a lot of um, uh, information there talking about different projects and programs that the law schools are doing. Um, and it's just sort of all across the board. But if I think when I was in law school 30 years ago and what I'm seeing from that report right now, it's pretty amazing. And just one sample statistic that she got, um, and I'm a meditator, so I've paid attention to this, that she found that 67% of the responding law schools have a structured mindfulness program. I mean, that's, that's pretty significant. Two thirds of the law schools are doing that. So it gives you a sense that, that the door has opened and then these things are starting to happen and none too soon because particularly if you start looking at the data about the behavioral health impact of this pandemic on young adults, which includes those law students, it has been devastating. The rates of depression, of anxiety, and even suicidality are deeply frightening and troubling. And so these um, students that are going through this are not gonna just snap out of it at the instant that the pandemic is quote unquote over. It's something that we really need to address and pay attention to. Well, it's been uh, obviously a lot of effort to kind of change the way things are done. You're, you all have made significant strides in convincing uh, bar admissions folks who are not the, uh, always the quickest to, to change on well-established uh, well traditions, I guess I should say. Uh, you've, you've made some real progress in, these, in changing on some of these very general questions about uh, past diagnoses. Right, that have an effect, they have a real dampening effect on law students' willingness to seek help. I mean, people are gonna have depression or anxiety and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. The concern comes when people are too afraid to seek help and there's fabulous treatment, um, fabulous chances of recovery and health in 2021. So we want people to ask for help and get help. But that that particular that policy area where you have these students that are trying to decide, you know, they're in their maybe they're a 2L and they are just feel like they're freaking out, but and that I want I need to see a therapist. But then they immediately think, well, I've got to answer that character and fitness part. And if I have to report to them that I saw a therapist, here's what that goes to their minds. I'm not going to get a job. I'll never get clients, you know, I'll never pass the bar. And, and it's just so much fear that it has the impact of uh, preventing them from asking for help, which no one wants. I mean, if you knew ask the National Conference of Bar Examiners, they're like, no, we want people to get help. And then these questions are also not tied to outcomes. So some of the stuff that, that we're really focusing on with the Institute for Wellbeing and Law is looking at public policy uh, changes, systemic changes that we can make. And this that you've touched upon is an area that we really wanna focus on right up front. Well, and, and you just referenced a, a minute or two ago, the pandemic and the impact of the law students. And I think we're all just sort of starting to get a handle on how the, the pandemic is changing the legal profession. We've talked about how you know, all the innovations the state courts have made as a result, some of which are great. Um, my court is back to live, um, but some of the other courts around the country are still very much 
uh, Zoom oriented. And so we, you know, we've kind of monitored that as we've launched our podcast in the pandemic. Do you have any thoughts on how the legal profession might change from the perspective of well-being as a result of the pandemic? Sure. The first thing that I think we will see and we're already seeing is an impact around the stigma that's associated with having a depression, having depression or anxiety, et cetera. Because quite frankly, it's everywhere. I mean, if you again, if you look at the statistics and the rates of depression and burnout and anxiety in the, just the general working population in the United States, which is where we really have the data right now. And of course, lawyers are a part of that. Um, and so it is so pervasive. The hope is that it's going to be a little bit more normalized to say, yes, I'm dealing with a bout of depression right now and I need to take time once a week to go see a therapist or whatever that might be and feeling like that's okay. So I think that there may be some reduction around the stigma. I believe that the um, major law firms, big law are increasingly open to and paying attention to lawyer well-being and including uh, sometimes very extensive programming for their lawyers realizing that you know we've got to get people them back to work we want them productive um, and so when when lawyers if, if you've got a, a cadre of lawyers who are burned out and anxious and you bring them back into the workplace that's not what you want to have the most profitable <laughs> powerful effective law firm and um, so the, it's, it may bring some changes around that. That is, that is the hope, certainly. Well, all that, uh, I guess, is in the category of silver linings, perhaps, right. um, if we're going to try to find those. Um, let me ask you this. In our podcast, we like to talk about women lawyers who are trailblazers. And you have been on the forefront of the well-being movement in law since its inception. If you listen to the podcast, you'll hear her talk about being in a room, as you referenced earlier, and coming up with some audacious and ambitious goals. Based on your experience as a, as a national leader and a woman, what advice do you have for women who are passionate about goals that might not be the easiest to pursue? You know, I think thinking about in my experience, what was it about was going on, has gone on with me or who I am that helped me to get into the space I currently am. And I, an advice that I would have if to a, a woman, whatever stage she is in the career, because when I started this, I was a 25 year lawyer. I was not a new lawyer at all, but to look for the people and the projects that that are around the issues for which you have passion and perhaps experience and particularly life experience and do your best to align yourself with them. So that takes initiative, uh, research, action on your part. It takes courage, a belief in your ability to do these things. Or even if you don't have the belief, you act like you do because so many women you know, still deal, and I do, deal with the imposter syndrome. Let me just tell you a quick story, referencing that room where all this started with the National Task Force. And we had the heads of several national legal organizations um, and a, a couple of centers from the ABA. So we were in the room and I'm looking around this thinking, oh my Lord, I am not worthy. Look at the people that are in this room. 
And so I, I felt like um, sort of a hanger on. I was, so, I was just tickled to be in the room. And I said, you know what? I'll sit back here and I'm gonna take minutes. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna sit back here and I'm gonna take the, but I did, I did it. I did the work, I did it. You know, I maybe at 25 year lawyer and what I was doing that was quote unquote below me, but no, I did it. I showed up, I participated, I did my work. And then about four months later, when the one of the chairs retired from the profession, people turned around and looked at me. And then I moved up to the co-chair and have sat in that leadership space since then. So, um, yeah. <laughs> and so that's, a, that's a great story of how sometimes yeah. uh, just, just rolling up your sleeves and doing the work and not worrying about how, whether the work is appropriate for you or, or whatever, and just, just jumping in can have such an impact. Yeah. And I would think, you know, I see a lot of younger women that are trying to, or people, lawyers, that are trying to break into the space around well-being. There's consultants and lots going on. And a lot of what I see are people positioning themselves on, you know, LinkedIn, social media, that sort of thing. And that is not sufficient. I mean, I would just say that you're not going to make advances in doing that. You've got to get in there with the people, show up, demonstrate yourself and in no, not long, you're going to start being brought in into the, the circle if you can be counted upon, if you're a worker, um, if you can make things happen. So, and certainly, and certainly, you know, you come uh, to this topic with such authority, not only from your years uh, at TLAP, which, you know, we talked about the lawyer assistance programs, and, you know, th those are the day to day, you know, uh, emergency responders, really, for for lawyers. We're hoping that as a result of well the well-being movement, they become more preventative and you know more proactive. But certainly, when you were there, you were an emergency responder in That's this right. in this world, and you have come around now to use all that knowledge and talent uh, to lead this movement, and uh, it's very exciting. Hats off to you. Thank you. And you know the story. You may have some of your listeners may have heard it about the idea that you're you're seeing people drowning in this stream, and they just keep coming by, and you keep jumping in and pulling them out and pulling them out, and finally, it's like, well, what? Why is this happening? Let's go upstream and fix whatever is happening. And that is really what I see the institute is doing. Well, um, we wish you well, we support what you're doing and are very excited to see uh, where all this goes next. So thank you so much, Brie, for joining us today uh, and being part of our conversation. Absolutely, thank you for the opportunity. Let me just close with a few little tidbits. Um, if you are a lawyer or a law student or a judge, uh, or if you love one, resources are available um, before things come crashing down and before there's the discipline involved. Um, the JLAP programs in the States are thriving and they are full of compassionate people with a obligation of confidentiality to help you uh, and they can help you. So that's one thing I want you to take away. Second is well-being week in law is coming up 
uh, May 3rd through 7th. Um, on the website of the Institute for Wellbeing and Law, uh, Law, there are links. There is free information every day during Wellbeing Week in Law. Uh, it might give you some a new tool, a new skill, something to help uh, you get through um, what is no doubt a challenging thing to do, whether you're a lawyer or a judge or a law student. So Wellbeing Week in Law is coming up. And finally, um, and this is so important, if you or someone you know needs help, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. So thank you all, and we will see you next time on Lady Justice, Women of the Court. Thanks for listening to Lady Justice, Women of the Court. Opinions expressed on the program are the justices alone and not necessarily those of their respective courts. Until next time.